On the Good Morning Hamilton podcast today, we are talking about COVID cases and flu cases. COVID killed the flu, apparently, but what happens now that COVID is diving again? Experts are worried about that one. We're going to be talking about Buy American, more confusing and more problematic. We are talking about a new proposal from the Liberal Party for a four-day work week. Good idea? Do you think the same if you own a business? Hmm. Why are people quitting social media or thinking about quitting social media? You could probably guess, but we're going to talk about it. Schoolyards, not enough of them. Apparently, that's the answer from a new survey. Schools don't have places for kids to play. This is a problem. Again, you can probably figure out why, but why do schools not have enough schoolyards? And we're also going to talk to Sharon and Brom from Sharon, Lois and Brom, legendary Canadian children's entertainers. You definitely want to stick around for this. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. And astounding outcomes of the arrival of COVID has been the, basically the end of the flu. I'm not overstating it. I'm not being hyperbolic. Canada last year during flu season had basically no real outbreaks. And again, that's not being exaggerating. If you go online and look, there were very, 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 very few cases of the flu last year. I mean, way below what we would have had in previous years, where we would have hundreds or maybe even thousands of people across the country die from influenza or be hospitalized with serious cases of influenza last year. Uh, Hospitals from coast to coast were reporting very few, very few cases. However, there are theories for why that was, and those same theories are giving us, giving experts reason to believe that perhaps the flu could be back this winter, and maybe in a bad way. I want to bring in Phil Hauser of Hauser Pharmacy and Hauser's Home Healthcare. He joins us now. Phil, how are you today? I'm very well, Scott. Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, Thrilled to have you on. Thanks for getting up early to do this. (laughs) What is your theory? There are lots of theories out there. What's your theory for why the flu basically disappeared last year? Well, it's, uh, you're right. There are many theories out there as to, as to why this may have occurred. But, uh, I think the one that, uh, that stands uh, a little bit above all the rest is that uh, all the, the measures that we were taking to contain, uh, COVID, uh, as a as a wonderful side effect or as a wonderful uh, bonus, uh, we're able to kind of contain the flu as well. Um, all the masks, all the hand washing, all the surface watching, all the uh, staying away from uh, crowded areas. Um, you think even during school time, and certainly uh, young kids are are you know you go to school, you get a flu, you you pass it on to your classmates, kind of thing, and it infects half the half the class. Yeah, um, we didn't have that last year. So it would, uh, there were a lot of points of contact that just weren't there to pass on the flu. If that's true, and, and look, w- what you're saying is a commonly held theory and, and makes a ton of sense. There's no question about that. If that's true, though, and if the flu does return this year, and if it is a bad flu season, and if we have hundreds or thousands of people needing care, could you see medical officials or government officials suddenly making a push to say, look, we, we basically got rid of the flu if we did masking and social distancing. We're going to put in policies now that every year during flu season, that becomes a requirement just to try and deal with this. 
Yeah, um, that's that's a tough question because, of course, as you know, the the influenza virus, uh, we tend to have different variants uh, or different variations of the the virus that happen to kick up every year. Uh, the flu jab that we commonly get every year has you know three or four different uh, variants that we're trying to protect uh, everyone against. Uh, so it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, a black black ball in terms of uh, which one of those is going to be uh, the most uh, concerning for the population. Uh, and we we often look to uh, you know our our neighbors down south or or to the Australians as kind of the canary in the coal mine as to what our flu season is going to look like. And I think in these particular cases, what we've seen coming out of Australia over the last uh, kind of couple of months is that uh, the influenza virus, or at least some variants of it, um, have kind of spiked. And we have seen a lot of cases down there, in, in, in particular in the pediatric populations. So could is it a possibility that in addition to the masking and the social distancing and the hand washing and everything, is it a possibility that last year's strain was simply that we lucked out and last year's strain was not very harsh and therefore we we benefited from that? But if you have a harsh strain, even if we do those things, it could still be bad? Um, I mean, it's, it's entirely possible and, and certainly I don't have any of the microbiological uh, uh, kind of evidence to suggest, you know, one way or the other. But I think then the likelihood that we had a, an inferior strain of influenza on top of all those measures that we're doing is probably a little bit smaller than the idea that, um, you know, all the measures that we're taking were, were done well. Um, but that being said, yeah, I think that, you know, uh, the measures taken this year, uh, if that happens to be the case, this may be the test year that it shows, um, you know, when those measures are removed and influenza comes back, we can um, point even more likelihood to the idea that the measures that we did take were effective. Many of the people who uh, very unfortunately have died from COVID have been, not all obviously, but many have been elderly or many have had other existing health problems. Are those the same people who oftentimes would have been the ones who would have got the flu? I think when we look at the uh, the fatalities or the, the you know the the people that are most affected by the flu uh, year on year out, uh, there is a similarity. Uh, certainly, the, you know the, the two groups are not mutually exclusive between those that uh, would likely ha- would have been uh, candidates for suffering from COVID more significantly. Um, meaning that um, yeah, there is some overlap there for sure. But I think what we saw with COVID is that. Uh, you know, there was there is a component, uh, a stronger component in younger populations that we just didn't see with most flu viruses. So, when we consider uh, the guidance uh, for people taking the flu jab, we look at you know people over 65, people that are uh, in contact with people that have compromised health, and uh, certainly younger populations. Uh, there's generally an expectation that when the flu shot. Uh, is given that we reach 30 to 40 percent of the overall population uh, that takes it and that uh, there's a large percentage of us that don't get it. Um, And in these particular cases, um, you know, you're expected to kind of weather the flu yourself. So are you expecting then that we're going to have a surge of people coming in for a flu shot this year? Or are you of the opinion that, you know, there's been so much talk and so much debate and so much deliberation about COVID vaccines that people are almost vaccinated out and they aren't really wanting to think about this? 
Yeah, I think there's kind of kind of two thoughts that I have on this. I mean, we're certainly there's a, a population that's certainly looking to see if there's going to be a third shot or a booster shot for COVID, and uh, certainly from from a medical community point of view, we had the expectation that there may be some guidance given on that um, with a co-administration of of the flu shot. Um, so that we would be kind of doing both at once, because I think it would be it's going to be very taxing if that third shot does come in, and we do have to do the and we're doing the flu shot for that same population as well. Um, so I mm. think that there's a good part of the population on the other hand that said, you know, I was on the fence about getting both COVID shots, I probably wasn't getting the flu shot um, on a year to on a day to day or a year to year basis, anyways. Uh, and I think them they would be a little bit more unlikely now to get the flu right. shot, just given that there were some social mandates for COVID shots. Phil, we literally have 10 seconds. Could someone come in and get the, a booster or get their COVID shot and the flu shot at the same time, or can they not be done simultaneously? Absolutely, they can be done okay. uh, together. We've been given guidance that they can be done together. Phil Hauser from Hauser Pharmacy and Hauser's Home Healthcare. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you for this. God, it's an absolute pleasure. And uh, have a wonderful Monday. You as well. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There are a couple bills in front of Congress right now in the States that are concerning some Canadian business leaders. Both involve Buy American provisions, B-U-Y, Buy American provisions. Uh, we're going to talk about one of those right now. It's one that puts a spotlight on the auto sector. And this one, and of course, it's way more complicated. It probably goes thousands of pages like most bills do in the States, it seems. But essentially, this one would allow American buyers to receive up to up to $12,500 in tax credits if they buy an electric car. But part of those credits, it seems, would only be available if the car that they buy was assembled in the United States. You can see then why some Canadians and some in the auto sector here might be a little nervous about this. Time to bring in the man from this area who can explain economics better than anyone else that I know of anyway. His name is Marvin Ryder from the DeGroot School of Business. Mr. Ryder, thank you for doing this so early this morning. That's quite all right. Glad to be with you today. I, um, I could understand if I was an automaker why something like this might make me nervous, especially if I was trying to decide where I would want to expand my businesses if I think that there is going to be a huge incentive for Americans to buy only American-built products, I would think maybe that would be time to build something in the States. Am I being too simplistic? No. Uh, I, although you said it would make them nervous, I don't think the car uh, companies themselves are nervous. It's government people looking at this who get nervous. So let's, let me just back it up and try to explain it all in context. The bill you're talking about is a $3.5 trillion bill that people will have heard about. It's a bill as an infrastructure bill. But uh, to give you an example, the infrastructure, you gave, a, you said it right there, they were going to give people incentives to buy electric cars. That's not traditionally what we consider as infrastructure, but that's uh, in that bill. You're also correct in saying that in the draft legislation, nothing's been approved yet, but in the draft legislation, it says that this uh, grant of up to $12,500 
towards the purchase of an electric vehicle would only apply if it was assembled in the United States. So there's no comment here about content. It doesn't have to have all American parts. The parts could be coming from around the world, but it has to be assembled in the United States. And you can see perhaps why they don't want to give people an incentive to buy a Chinese-made car or an Indian-made car or a German-made car. We want to help the American auto industry. As so often happens, though, they forget that the auto industry is really a North American auto industry. When you survey Americans about this, they actually see them as the same thing. Yeah, American, North American, it's all really the same sort of thing. We don't have a problem with that. But our politicians have said, whoa, 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 whoa. We have a lot of plants here in Canada. Uh, as you may know, we lost a plant in Oshawa a couple of years ago, and GM announced that they wanted to reopen that plant as a center of building electric cars. And we were thrilled to hear that. That's great. That's going to put jobs back into the Oshawa economy. But now, if this goes through, will GM follow through on its, on its uh, promises? Wouldn't hurt, say, a battery plant. You could have the batteries made in Canada, but we were hoping for assembly jobs in Canada. So last week, Christia Freeland flew to uh, Washington, met with the Janet Yellen, who's the uh, Secretary of, uh, of uh, Commerce, and said, you know, we love your bill in many ways, but uh, could you just define America as North America? That would help us all a lot here in Canada. And I wouldn't say she got a chilly reception, but she also didn't get people jumping up and down and saying, oh, our bad, sorry, we'll redefine that for you, we'll get right on that. Um, and it also is not clear that uh, any senators or any people in the House of Representatives are, are hearing us. And so this bill could change dramatically the face of auto manufacturing in Canada, not in the next year or two, but we're looking out more in the five to ten year time frame. Right. And while I, and your, your point about it's government that is most concerned about this, if I am an automaker, do I then just assume that this is going to be some sort of temporary measure, I suppose, or something that can blow by... Because that would, I mean, it potentially would have an impact on what investment you would have here if you suddenly think this oh, yeah. is going to be the case forever. Right. Well, if I am GM or Ford or Chrysler, who tend to be the companies that most manufacture cars in, in uh, North America, this would tell me quite clearly that if I'm going to build a, an electric car assembly plant, I'd better build it in the United States. You can see why, again, uh, uh, Mr. Biden is very sensitive to what we know as the Rust Belt. Those are nice, uh, nice states like Michigan, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, uh, who've lost, again, they've lost auto manufacturing as well. So let's bring that back there. Uh, he, he says when he meets with people like Mr. Trudeau that, oh, I, this really isn't about you. It's about those other countries. It, but what you say versus what's in the bill is something quite different. Now, just so you know, uh, Scott, we're, we're not completely toothless here. We do have the North American Free Trade Agreement, the new version of it. Uh, which the United States likes to call USMCA, and it has some provisions in there when we think the United States is behaving badly on trade. This does seem to contravene the whole spirit of free trade. And we also have something called the World Trade Organization, the WTO, where you can take a country and say they're being unfair. You can take them to court. But the problem there is that those cases take a while to hear and a while for the penalties to come out and what have you. And by that point, the decisions might be made. And as you can guess, companies are not building assembly plants all the time. So you'd rather get it right 
right at the beginning rather than try to reverse course a few years from now. In other words, you, you might get a victory in the court that says, oh, yeah, right, they can build them in Canada, that'd be fine, but they've now built all the assembly plants they need for electric vehicles, and Canada is shut out. So we want to make sure we're part of that uh, electric car movement going forward. This is sort of peripheral to this, but we often hear in this country moves to buy Canadian. I mean, that, that's a common thing for people yep. to say buy Canadian. Are, are we being hypocritical when we say buy Canadian and then we get bent out of shape when Americans say buy American? Well, no, uh, but you see, uh, I call that a, a nice jingle. You can put that out. I'm, you know, I'm buying Canadian, but I don't know quite what always that means. Uh, for instance, uh, do I look at, at where something was assembled so I could buy a Canadian-made shirt, but it's probably made with cotton that came from India or Pakistan or someplace like that? Uh, what is important? Canadian-made wine, but is the grapes grown? Are the grapes grown here? Are we taking juice from Chile and turning them into wine? Is the wine even all Canadian or is it blended? None of us read the fine print. And um, that becomes very, very important in all of this. So the same thing with America, by the way. You know, when America says buy America, usually if you look really closely, what they're saying is don't buy Chinese, don't buy Russian, don't buy Indian, don't buy European. But they actually don't mean don't buy Canadian. They get a little fuzzier when you get with Mexico, but, but they often view us as the 51st state and they just kind of forget that when you well, when you define it this way, you're excluding us. Did you really mean to do that? And that's why uh, our politicians spend a lot of time in Washington speaking to bureaucrats and others to clarify: Was this really your intention? Uh, do you really dislike us? And and oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, we can get them to change some language to make sure that we're included in the family. Marvin Ryder from the Negroot School of Business. Always appreciate your time. Thanks for doing this today. Glad to be with you, Scott. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It's an idea that if the Liberals were to win in the provincial election, that a four-day work week would be taken a look at. A pilot project for a four-day work week would be explored, which I think probably would find some popularity with workers. I do. Let me bring in Stephen Del Duca. He is the leader of the Ontario Liberals, not the government yet. That was a Freudian slip, Mr. Leader. But nonetheless, I'm, I'm sure you're hoping that you can come back on here in a few months and that will be the truth. Thanks for joining yes, us. I, well, my pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Is this idea of a four-day week work week, which again, I do think there will be some people who will look at this very favorably, is this prop, uh, proposal for government workers or for all workers? No, I, the pilot that I that I talked about in my remarks yesterday to our annual convention would be that I think we should take a, a hard look, like other parts of the world, at a potential four-day work week for various parts of the economy. I, I, I don't know if it'll work here. I mean, that's the bottom line. But we have seen that it's being examined in New Zealand and Spain and Scotland and Iceland. And I think I think what we've learned during this pandemic is that people view work differently today than they once did. Trying to strive for the work life balance that my parents might have might have had through all those years raising me and my brothers and sister, that that's out of reach for far too many people. And so work has always evolved. It's always improved. I think we have to take a look at all options. And this is what I'm proposing. And I think it I think it deserves uh, being analyzed for sure. Theoretically, and again, you're talking about it being a pilot, and you're talking about it being looked at. But theoretically, how would this work? Would this be a situation where 
companies would be required to offer a four-day week, or do we know how this would work yet? I, I mean, I think the bottom line is we don't know for sure how it would work. We don't know if it'll... Like, I suspect there are parts of the economy where it would be really difficult from a scheduling perspective to go here quickly, but I think there are other parts of the economy where it might work well on a voluntary basis. I mean, I love I love research, and I love getting the facts before especially government makes big decisions. That's why I'm proposing a pilot. I think we... We have so much talent here in this province, and there are so many different potential ways this could work. That's why we want to take a look at it. I want the evidence. I want the facts. I want the analysis. And then we'll make a responsible decision about how to go forward. Yeah, and, and so I appreciate the clarification because one of one of the areas where I was thinking, okay, how is this going to work was, for example, with teachers. How, how do you do a four-day work week with teachers in schools? That would be That would be difficult. Maybe that's one area that doesn't get done. What about, though, the idea that I think some people, I mean, again, I think workers, a lot of them are going to really love this idea, but what about the idea that private businesses should be allowed to operate the way that they feel best and not have the government tell them how their business should be operated? Well, there's a couple of things to keep in mind in that regard. I I get that principle completely. Look, I'll even tell your audience that my mom many, many years ago ran her own small business in Toronto. I, I saw it firsthand. I know that it's a struggle for a lot of employers, in particular small business people. But I think there's a couple of things to keep in mind. One is through this pilot project, we may discover, and this may very well be the way that a future liberal government, should we earn that chance, would go, that it should be voluntary, that it shouldn't be mandatory. I mean, there's lots of different, again, ways this might unfold. That's why I want to do the pilot. So we have all the information in front of us. But let's also not forget that people people do have the opportunity to run their businesses, as you said, quote, uh, as they see fit. But we still have lots of rules and regulations in place in all kinds of different areas that business owners are required to follow. There's an Employment Standards Act. There are all kinds of rules and regulations that need to be followed. And that's that's what we all buy into to live in a civilized society. With this idea, I want to launch the pilot. If we earn the opportunity to govern next year, let's launch it quickly. Let's get it out there. Let's get the information back openly, transparently, share it with the public, and then make a responsible decision about how to go forward. One of the things that seems, now there are a number of countries that have tried this, uh, New Zealand, uh, yeah. Spain, uh, Iceland, and, and I was doing some reading last night. i I'll be honest, I, I was not overly familiar with how all of these worked prior to hearing you make this proposal. Uh, but Iceland, for example, really interesting one because, they, and it may be similar to others, they've gone to a four-day work week or at least offered it, but workers get paid the same amount for doing fewer hours within That's those right. four days. Yeah. And I look at this and I go, okay, again, I, again, I, I can see why workers would love this, but is that something that businesses should be told they are supposed to do to pay workers for fewer hours for the same amount of money? Well, I mean, again, in the Iceland example, there are, there's a couple of different ways that they did it there, a couple of different ways that they looked at it there. Um, so I've seen examples around the world where it's been the same number of hours over a week, just compressed into four days rather than five. I've seen the other example where it's actually slightly fewer hours for the same pay. I think, you know, just one step behind all of this, one of the other reasons that I'm attracted to the idea of studying it is that we've seen we've seen that people's productivity levels have dropped off. We've seen that people's mental health challenges have spiked, in particular during this pandemic. We know that there are literally thousands, I'm sure there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of people listening right now who've seen that whole idea of work-life balance or work-life integration go right out the window. They're working harder. They're falling further and further behind. As I said yesterday in my speech, we are not on this planet 
so that we can live to work. We're supposed to work so we can live. And so I want better productivity. I want better, better mental health. I want families to actually work well together and have that good work-life balance. And so this is just one of the things I want us to look at. I think looking at it certainly has merit. I don't, I don't want to do anything that makes life difficult. I don't, but I think at the bottom, the bottom line is if you're an employer and you can have a healthier, stronger, more productive workforce, that's worth its weight in gold. Uh, just before we go, we only have a few seconds left. So theoretically, again, because I know this is new, how would the pilot project work? Would it be a number? Would it be a sector that would be asked to test this, or would it be? Um, uh, I mean, how, who would who would fall into the pilot project, or do we know that yet? Yeah, so we don't have all of the details. I would say I'd like it to be more than one sector because I don't, you know, we have a very diverse economy in Ontario, and I don't want to suggest that what would what would work in the public sphere could work in the private sphere, or vice versa. So. I'd want to see different sectors uh, participate. I'd want to maybe look at a voluntary enrollment. That would be very helpful. Different regions of the province, because we know the economy is slightly different depending on where you are in the province. And so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll have more details about the specifics a little closer to the election. But I'm really excited about this. This is something that is it's bold. It's innovative. It's, the, it's a kind of real solution that I think people are grasping for right now. And I'm, again, I'm really excited about this, Scott. I'm, I'm glad to have the chance to talk about it. Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca, appreciate you getting up early to talk to us this morning. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let me ask you a question about your bedtime habits. This is not a weird question, believe me. I'm not going down that road. But when you lie in bed at night, for just one of the ways you might do this, do you grab your cell phone? your smartphone and surf the net and look at social media and do all that stuff right before bed that I am absolutely guilty of that. Absolutely guilty of that. And it's one of the things that is apparently causing people to rethink, reevaluate their social media involvement because it's not, you know, that's not always the most positive thing to do right before you try to fall asleep. A, they say technically, like the light and the blue light and all that kind of stuff, not good for you, but also the bombarding yourself with some of the stuff that we find on social media, maybe not the most ideal way to sleep, but it's not just sleeping. It's through the course of the day. We, as a people, many of us who are on social media, we kind of bombard ourselves with this stuff. And there are a lot of people now looking, saying, boy, there's a lot of negative stuff on social media. Why am I doing this to myself? And they are reevaluating how much time they are spending there. Dr. Shannon McDonald is an assistant professor at the Department of Communication Arts, associate chair of speech communication and digital arts communication at the University of Waterloo. She joins us now. Dr. McDonald, thanks for the time today. Thanks for having me. Do you think people are actually quitting social media or are they just reevaluating whether they should quit social media? I think both are happening. I think we're actually seeing a trend where people are actually walking away completely from uh, their social media platforms. But then I think a larger part of the population is beginning to kind of question, evaluate, and decide what kind of relationship they're going to have with the platforms going forward. See, because sometimes I think social media is a little like, you know, the mob in the movies when they say you can, you know, you can get in, but you can never really leave. They always pull you back. I, I think if you sign out of Twitter or Facebook or whatever, somehow it's going to draw you back in for most people anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I delete Twitter from my phone at least once every month and then it goes <laughs> back on. So, yeah, I agree. 
I agree. Um, I mean, it's, it's such an ingrained part of our daily lives now that it, I, it's actually pretty hard to imagine how you would completely quit it if you're already pretty ingrained in it. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I'm not going to ask you your age, but I know for my age, I mean, I grew up without it. Uh, I'm not that old, but I mean, my, my youth, my high school years in the eighties, not an issue, but if you're a person who's, let's say under 30, maybe that, I don't know if that's the right age. You've never not had this. This has been a part of your life forever. It would be inconceivable not to have social media. Absolutely. That's what we call, and I'm not in that age group. I'm closer to you, but um, that's what we call digital natives. So people who are born in digital environments and so they don't know anything other. And so they're, their grade school years, their high school years are completely formed then by the social media platforms that they were discovering as they were starting to kind of grow up and have a, you know, get to know themselves in the world. So when I said, are people actually quitting or just reevaluating? I think for some people quitting obviously could be positive. Could there be a positive even with doing the latter? Could there be a positive even for someone who is saying, let me at least figure out what I'm doing here and whether I'm doing the right thing? I think that's entirely positive, and I think that's what people need to be working towards, because then you get to ask yourself, well, how much am I using it, and what, why am I using it? When do I pick it up? Is it when I'm bored? Is it when I'm anxious? Does it help mm. <laughs> when I'm bored or anxious? Um, are there other things I could be doing? Is there certain places I want to limit my exposure because, you know, the conversation is too divisive or unpleasant? There's lots of conversations we can be having with ourselves. Um, to kind of have a, a better experience of the internet. I heard a term this week, and again, maybe this is just me not being, uh, not being tuned in as much as I should, but I heard a term this week that I'd never heard before, doom scrolling. Explain doom scrolling. I mean, it's perfect for Halloween. What is doom scrolling? <laughs> yeah, I mean, doom scrolling is when you're sort of stuck in that loop on a social media feed and everything coming up is just horrifying. <laughs> it's just bad news after bad news after angry conversation after fight and and you're just you're just kind of watching it and it's like a car crash that you can't look away from. You're just kind of stuck into it. Um and then you know time has passed and you didn't even notice how long you were there, but what you ended up doing was seeing a lot of pretty negative stuff. That that, that definitely impacts your mood, I would say. But isn't that it's stunning because isn't that exactly what the whistleblower that we've been hearing testify in front of the US Congress and spoke on 60 Minutes and in the Wall Street Journal, isn't this exactly what she said, and she was using Facebook's algorithm as the example, but that they were trying to do, they they feed you angry stuff because that makes you stick around longer? That sounds like a perfect description of what she said. Oh, 100%. This is what we've known for a long time about social media platforms, and I'm glad it's finally coming into kind of public conversation, is that they're absolutely designed to keep you doom scrolling. And it might not just be doom scrolling. They also use humor. Um, they use fear. Like whatever will create an emotion in a person while they're on social media and keep them stuck and riveted to that social media platform, that's how they make their money. And so that's how they're going to design things. And the problem is that there's negative impacts on that for us as users and for us as a society. And that's the thing that we need to be thinking about. Okay. But we know that with other things that we might do in our life, that if it's bad for us or not even necessarily bad, if it's unhealthy for us, we would try to not do it. Now people can't always quit smoking cigarettes, but they may try. Why, if we think that this is not helping our mental health, why are we still doing it? Why is it so addictive then? Well, they've made it <clears throat> addictive, so that's one of the things. Um, but also, I think that, you know, this is just like, say, cake or candy or any other thing that we that we really like and gives us pleasure. We have to think about ways that we can do it in moderation, and that's all there is to it. But the fact is, is that our society, the way that we kind of interact in the world now, 
is shaped by how we exist online. Yes. It's part, you know, and so it's hard then to say, well, I'm just going to quit it cold turkey. I think cigarettes are a really good analogy for that. But like, you know, finding a way then to moderate and, and be and be moderate in your in your um, engagement with social media. But for many people, this is part of their work. Their job requires them to be on social media. So you can't, even if you wanted to step away, and again, using the cigarettes, it would be like your work requiring you to smoke and then in your free time say, okay, don't smoke anymore. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's, it, 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 we're required to be on it. It's really hard to break away from it, even if we wanted to. Yeah, and I mean, I'm someone who has to use social media all the time. I study social media, so obviously I'm on it all the time at work. And so I actually have to put boundaries up when it's work time and when it's not. And finding other things to do in non-work time so that my entire day is not organized around social media. And that's, that's going to be a reality for a lot of people because more and more our jobs are tied into, you know, if not social media, then something digital and on the internet. Yeah, you know, as much as I think that there are an awful lot of people who probably would benefit from getting away from it, I just, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being negative, maybe I'm being pessimistic, but I just, I don't see a wave of people walking away from this. Maybe a few, but I, I don't see tons of people saying, okay, I'm going to shut out social media altogether and go back to a, a, you know, a more analog life. Well, this is the point of, I think, the whistleblower uh, conversation is it's not up to us. It should not be up to us. It should be regulated. It should be regulated and it should be the design of the platform should be kind of shifted in ways that make sure that the better parts of us come out on the Internet and not the worst parts. That's their job. <laughs> it's not up to us as citizens. We just we're working with the tools we've got. We're doing the best we can. The, the one thing about this that is so interesting to me that social media does, in addition to finding our anger, there are a lot of us and I don't like to brag about this, but that will respond to something with anger. It like, it turns us because of the anonymity, it turns us into bullies almost at times. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think needs to be regulated the most. How can we have more, um, kinder <laughs> and less, less divisive conversations on the internet? It needs, I think there needs to be regulation on that and finding ways to make it a part of the practice of the social media site, which again, goes back to the, the platform and the companies to design that. That's their job. Mm. Yeah, and the, you know, we, we could have a whole other discussion on the regulation and how we want government to stick their nose in or not, because that's a whole other complicated kettle of fish. But for now, we got to leave it there. Uh, Shanna McDonald, Assistant Professor, Department of Communication, Associate Chair, Speech Communication and Digital Arts Communication, University of Waterloo. Thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. No problem. Take care. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Let me tell you something that many of you probably already know, depending on where your kids go to school, where you went to school, where the schools are in your neighborhood, on and on and on. There are many schools out there that have schoolyards that don't really encourage kids to play. There was a study done by the Ontario Physical and Health Education Association found 73% of schools scored poorly when it comes to offering facilities for students to play during breaks. 10% of schools apparently had no fields at all. 16% had no sports courts. 13% had no play equipment, which I suppose probably is one thing if you're in high school, but if you've got kids who are in elementary or middle school and they got to do something, and maybe even for the high schools as well. Dr. Kelly Gallagher-McKay is an assistant professor and program coordinator in the Law and Society program at Wilfrid Laurier University. She was one of those involved in doing this study. She joins us now. Dr. Gallagher-McKay, thank you for the time today. Appreciate it. Hi, Scott. Thanks for having me on. And the 13% of schools was actually elementary schools only. So... Uh, 
Yeah, we looked. We did something uh, called auditing schoolyards using a tool that public health researchers had already developed and validated. Um, where originally what happened is somebody uh, used this tool, assessed schoolyard quality, and then slapped accelerometers on the wrists of children and watched how much they moved. And uh, there was a relationship between the quality of schoolyards and the level of physical activity that was observed in kids. We took their tool and asked people to audit their own schoolyards across the province, um, to generate our results. We got about 5% of schoolyards. Um, and what we found was that, uh, first of all, as you, as you pointed out, schoolyard quality really wasn't great. Um, if the best possible score was 88, uh, 73% of schools scored less than half of that. But also that there were really wide variations. And we're most worried, of course, about the schools at the bottom. Is this an economic issue? Are schools, just because they're so strapped for cash in many cases and have other priorities, that school yards have just sort of been left behind, or is there something else going on? Well, of course, we didn't... Um, <laughs> that wasn't one of our research questions, but uh, you can speculate. Um, I think schools do face a lot of priorities. You know, the same budget is... Uh, being used for ventilation of schoolyards right now. And also, we don't have any minimum standards in Ontario. Um, I think there's really room for us to say that there should be no no schoolyard in Ontario where elementary children are left um, for at least an hour a day of play with nothing to play with. Um, I don't understand how that's been allowed to happen. The province... Uh, gives money to every school board, and school boards have to, as I say, they have to juggle a lot of priorities, but they don't get a lot of guidelines. And the concern is, one of the concerns is that in the absence of these guidelines, well, maybe it's the fundraise the most that have better playgrounds. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's so many, there's so many things in this that uh, that I, I find so interesting. Well, I mean, first of all, there, I was a kid, for example, when I was young, my mom would, I was high energy. Let's put it that way, and uh, some might have said hyper, but no, we'll go with high energy for the sake of the argument. And I can't imagine if when I was in school during recess or during lunch break, if there had not been a place to go and blow off steam. I I was already having a hard time at times paying attention in class in the afternoon or by late in the morning. And if there was not somewhere for me to do that, I, I would have I would have driven every teacher even more crazy than I already drove them. And I bet there's an awful lot of kids who are exactly like me who don't have that option, though. Well, yeah. And, I mean, it's actually a good thing to be high energy. <laughs> and we They didn't say that back then. <laughs> to be running around. Well, it's, it's not uncomplicated. No, I know. <laughs> we want to get kids moving. There's terrible... Uh, health data on uh, kids today that they're not moving as much and we should be looking for where are the places where we can make some gains and a playground's not going to do everything but the evidence that says the built environment makes a difference is really strong. Yeah I mean and I know this was not I don't think part of your research but I think it may go with it I'm wondering if physical infrastructure is the only problem, because it seems to me we've had more and more restrictions that are put on what you can, what kids can do, even if they do go outside. And, and if it's raining, they don't go out. And if it's too cold, they don't go out. And if it's icy, they don't go out. And if there's this, it, it seems that we've not just physically, but we found all kinds of reasons not to have kids play. 
I wouldn't disagree with you about that. And I also think from the school's perspective, um, they face really significant challenges around supervision. You know, the same people, teachers have preparation and marking to do and all of these things. So it's a limited amount that we're going to ask them to supervise a schoolyard. Hmm. If one teacher supervising 75 or 100 kids, they're not doing a lot of facilitation. They're really just wandering around trying to, to manage problems rather than get kids playing. And I think we do need to think about what are the supports that would be required uh, beyond infrastructure and beyond. But it is a place where we could make a difference, and I do believe minimum standards would really help. Yeah, um, and I don't and blame just us. Thing, the other thing we looked at, we looked at two other things that I'm going to talk sure. about, uh, one of which is active transportation. So this goes beyond the school boards. Um, it really starts to engage the cities, and the other is environmental opportunities. So in our study, we found that you know, the thing that makes a single biggest difference for the amount kids move is the provision for active transportation. But that, that's missing, too. So, you know... Um, what does only, that mean? Only 20% of schoolyards have a bike lane. Oh, I see. Okay. Them. Uh, 33% of schoolyards don't have bike, bike racks. Um, there's really a lot of schools, almost 40% of the schools in our study had at least one road that was, had cars going faster than 40 kilometers an hour and fast roads, more injuries Hmm. and parents are more likely to feel like, Oh, I don't know if a kid's going to be safe walking there. And we've got to run, but we've got to run, but you just touched on one other thing that I think is important and it would be a discussion for another day. I don't blame entirely just schools and school boards on this. We, and I mean the public, by being hard on school. If our kid were to break an arm at school now, once upon a time, we might have said, oh, well, they broke their arm at school. Now, if you're a principal, you know that parent is probably coming in the door blowing smoke out their nostrils if something happens to their kid. That changes what you're allowed to do. Uh, yeah, parents and insurance companies. There you go. A really big difference. And also, our schoolyards are a, a place for kids to experience nature every day. And if your schoolyard is more than 50% pavement. Are you going to do that? <laughs> that is a very good question. <laughs> Dr. Kelly Gallagher-McKay from uh, Laurier University, thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate thanks, it. Scott. My pleasure. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We have in this country produced more than our fair share, I would suggest, of legendary children's performers. And if you've ever had kids and ever sat in front of the TV with kids, you will know. Their names, you'll know what they've done, you'll know their work. Mr. Dress Up, Captain Kangaroo, Raffi, Robert Munch, if you want to extend it that far. And of course, my next guests. Next month, they will be releasing their first album, I can't believe this, in 21 years. It is the best of the best live from Sharon, Lois, and Brom. Sharon and Brom join us now. Folks, how are you today? Thanks for doing this. Thank you very much. I have to correct you just quickly. Yes. Bram rhymes with ham. Right. Okay. Uh, that's what I am. So all these years I've pronounced ham, it wrong. Of and we are, we are, of course, delighted to be releasing this new album, which has about 25 cuts on it. And it's it includes Lois, who died a number of years ago. It includes her because this album is taken from recordings of concerts that we did between 1989 and 95. And uh, they're live recordings, and hopefully people will feel like they're once again at a Sharon Lois and Bram concert. 
particularly in this time of COVID when concerts were out of reach for everyone. Well, and I think many of the people who will get something out of this is not necessarily just young kids. I mean, that has been your audience often, but kids have grown up with this. You now have adults who grew up watching and listening and singing along. And and I got to think when people who are now having maybe their own kids come up and say, you know what, you had an impact on my life. That's got to be kind of mind blowing sometimes. Do you know that we are connected to four generations now? It is mind-blowing because when we first started, we realized that the adults are going to be listening, and that's what we've been doing all along. We've been playing for the families, grandparents, parents, kids, everybody, right from the very beginning, and it tells that people stick with us. It's wonderful. What do they say? What, what's, the, what's the most common comment that you get when people do say that they have been listening to you for years? Well, recently, a lot of people are telling us that they grew up on us, that we meant a great deal to them. In a lot of cases, people took music in their lives and pursued it, which it certainly was not a particular goal. We just wanted them to, to have access to music and to enjoy it. But they very often tell us now that they're happy to introduce our music to their children because they want the whole family to enjoy it together. I think you know, we uh, we get uh, we get a lot of feedback from teachers who who have been saying for years that they've been using our music in schools because it's so immediately appealing and inviting for participation. And uh, we love to hear that because the teachers are the are people who are nose to nose with those kids as we have been all these years. We hope that people will write to us and send us pictures and they, they could reach us through our through social media and they'll be able to access the music by um, by downloading it. It'll it'll be streaming as of the middle of November. And we hope they'll send us stories about their memories because some of those people will have gone to some of those concerts. The concerts are all over places in Canada and the United States. Um, so hopefully they'll they'll include us in their in their memories. And, you know, you talk about memories. I think that every musician, every group, every individual artist, whatever, everybody wants to have at least one song that they would be known for. When all is said and done, there's at least (laughs) one song that people, when you say that name, they go, oh, I know that one. And and I I think you know where I'm going with this. I don't think that there is a kid alive of a certain vintage, a, a person alive of a certain vintage in this country that doesn't know how to sing along to Skinnamarinkadinky-Doo, you know, I, like that is just, that is so much a part of kids' culture in this country. And you know, we didn't plan it that way. We had no, I didn't even sing on the original version <laughs> of it. Uh, but we ended the first concert with it, and from then on we knew that that was the song that people were going to carry in their heads and sing down the sing down the walkway away from the the theater and it was really true it was really true and it is stuck and we're so happy about it because it's it's a lovely song with a lovely message and it's been expanded with new words by my daughter Randy Hampson and we have a, a book called Sharon Lois and Bram Skinnerink it's a beautiful picture book with the song in the book we've recorded the song as well of course and beautiful illustrations by chin lang and there are two new books coming out in within the next couple of years depending on the problems of uh supply chain that everybody is experiencing now but where there will be a new one elephant and and a new skinner rank book so we're we're pretty excited about that 
Now that said, and I mean, I, I'm sorry, I said a new skin and rink. I meant a new one elephant and a new peanut butter. The skin and rink is out there and people can find it everywhere that you buy books. The one thing I must ask, you've probably now sung that song 12 trillion <laughs> times. As there exactly. ever, and every concert you do, you have to sing that. If you didn't sing that, people will say, what happened to them? They forget. Has there ever been a day you said, I wish there was one concert we didn't have to do that? Or you love that song so much, you know, we just, we want to do it every single time. No, you're absolutely right. There's no way that we would leave it out because people want it, but also because we love it. It has become part of us. And uh, when we see people participating like that, which we hope they'll be doing during these, these concert songs too, it really goes to our heart. We love it. That is something that I've, 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 asked, I've talked to a number of musicians over the years, many musicians, and one thing that I've often asked them, I think that I'm not a musician, uh, and that is for the benefit of all mankind that I'm not, but <laughs> I think one of the coolest things that you could have as a musician is a song that people could, that you created, that you would then hear people singing back to you. That, 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 I've always thought that's one of the coolest things you could ever experience. And we hear it everywhere. We hear it at weddings. We you know, and hear it on the street. It's, uh, it's, as Bram said, we love it. We've never tired of it. We, it's a very nice message and the notion that children sing to the parents or to the grandparents. Spreading that, that affection is only a good thing. And as and, Bram said, and now, and now it's, album, a bigger, it's a bigger song because Randy has written extra verses for it. Exactly. And as I was saying, I, we're hoping that, and Bram, I think you mentioned this as well, we're hoping that with this live album that people at home will feel like they're at one of our concerts and they'll be singing along with the music on on, uh, on the album. The new album is Sharon Lois and Brom, Best of the of Bram. You know what? I've said that wrong now for 28 years probably, so I'm going to fix it now. Bram, not yeah, Brom. There you go. Sharon Thank Lois and Bram. There you go. Uh, Sharon Lois and Bram, Best of the Best Live. So appreciate you taking a few minutes today. Thank you for doing this. Oh, a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.